Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network, a podcast. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Each month or so, I interview an author of a new or recent book in genocide studies. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Fatma Muge Gocek to the show. Longtime listeners may recognize her name. A couple years ago, I interviewed Ramsey about the book A Question of Genocide, Armenians and Turks at the End of the Ottoman Empire, and Muge was a co-editor on that book. I didn't get a chance to talk with her then, but I'm excited to be able to rectify that today. And today we're going to talk about her new book, Denial of Violence, Ottoman Past, Turkish Present, and Collective Violence Against the Armenians, 1789 to 2009. The book is a thoughtful, intellectually rigorous, and at the same time intensely personal examination of the way in which violence against the minorities in Turkey and the Ottoman Empire, especially Armenians, has been obscured and denied over the past 125 years. It presents a well-thought-out theory of denial, but it does so in prose that makes good use of the personal observations of hundreds of memoirists. It's a fascinating book, and I'm thrilled to be able to talk with Muge about it today. So, with that, Muge, thanks for being with us in New Books and Genocide Studies, and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So why don't we start out um, the way we usually do on the show, and and I'll ask you just to tell us a little bit about your background and and how you came to be interested in, in the subject of your book. Sure. Uh, I was born and raised in Istanbul, Turkey. Uh, after I uh, went to uh, Robert College, which is an American uh, high school, uh, and uh, Bosphorus University uh, after that, uh, where I received a BA and MA in uh, sociology in uh, English, uh, the language of instruction is in English. Then I applied for uh, a PhD program. Uh, here in the United States and ended up in, at Princeton, where I got my PhD. And after that, uh, I have been uh, a faculty member at the University of Michigan Ann Arbor uh, since then. Uh, in terms of uh, what interests me uh, and how I ended up uh, studying this uh, particular topic, uh, I was initially, uh, I was uh, probably the fact that I was in Turkey in the late 1970s and 80s, early 1980s, when the student movement and unrest there was at its height, had something to do with it. Uh, I initially was going to be a business major and follow uh, the family uh, profession because they're all business people. Uh, But when I started seeing all the conflict around me, I said I couldn't in good conscience make money when uh, the society was falling apart. And therefore, I first switched much to my father's distress into the social sciences. (laughs) And then after that, uh, I had a hard time deciding between social psychology and sociology. But I thought that it would be more interesting uh, to look at things at the societal perspective. And that's why I ended up in sociology, uh, and my father, uh, you know, uh, 
he said that, you know, because I was a girl, I sort of could do whatever I want. Uh, unlike, you know, if I had been a, a son, um, there would have been much more precious pressure huh. probably to do something uh, more uh, profitable or, you know, more income worthy. So I, that is how um, I uh, started working. Uh, I tried to understand what was going on in the Turkish society and why there was so much unrest. And I thought at the time that it was very contentious and conflictual to try to look at things in the contemporary uh, era. Mm -hmm. So I said, well, why don't I look into the origins, you know, the roots of all of this unrest? Uh, I thought that would be much uh, safer politically. And therefore, um, I decided to uh, look at the way in which uh, Turkey um, interacted with the with the West, um, because uh, at that time uh, the reigning paradigms were that you know we couldn't understand why Turkey couldn't become a capitalist country, a successful country like Japan or other countries. So that was why I thought I should look at the way in which uh, Turkey interacted with the West. That is the Ottoman Empire uh, interacted mm -hmm. with the West. And because of that, uh, uh, my um, master's thesis when I was um, at Boazic University was actually uh, a study of uh, the uh, Ottoman population transfer policies uh, mm. in, in the early Ottoman era. Uh, and then uh, for um, my uh, dissertation, I looked at the westernization process um, and uh, that ended up um, in a in a book uh, called uh, "The Rise of the Bourgeoisie: Demise of Empire, uh, Ottoman Westernization and Social Change." And there, I was looking at you know how uh, Ottomans interacted with the West. And during while I was a graduate student, actually, I wrote another book, uh, which sort of led to the dissertation that was uh, on. Uh, uh, East, uh, Ottoman, uh, East Encounters West, it was called, and how it was on the first Ottoman embassy that was sent to France uh, with the intent in the 1720s, with the intent to uh, observe, you know, Western ways of doing things and then recommend what to do about them back home. Uh, so after, you know, dabbling in the West, uh, that uh, I wrote my dissertation, as I said, on it, and uh, I then became a faculty member at the University of Michigan, and the book came out, and it was fine. And uh, what I had observed in that book was that at the, towards the end of the Ottoman Empire, uh, um, what happened uh, was that there had been a bourgeoisie that was created in the Ottoman context, uh, but these were mostly uh, non-Muslim uh, um, economic bourgeoisie. Uh, they were very important uh, in trade, commerce, and you know a lot of the activities that the bourgeoisie engage in. And um, I realized that with the establishment of the Turkish Republic, um, they all met their demise one way or the other. Mm. The, the the Jewish were uh, small in numbers, uh, and they eventually became replaced by. Uh, Muslim-Turkish uh, bourgeoisie. The Greek <clears throat> bourgeoisie were actually uh, uh, had to leave uh, mostly 
forced and later through a population exchanged uh, for Greece. And for the Armenian uh, bourgeoisie, they were, uh, of course, liquidated uh, through massacres uh, and, and, and violence. And that's always uh, had uh, me ask the question, what would have happened if we hadn't gone through that uh, liquidation? Uh, how would Turkey have come to be? Uh, what kinds of uh, advantages or disadvantages we would have had or disadvantages if they, that had continued? So that was always in the back of my mind. Um, and after I finished my book, I was supposed to write a second, uh, of course, book. Um, at the time, I thought I would write, write on the Islamist movement. Uh, because Islam, for the first time, was becoming a significant political force in Turkey. And um, I went and interviewed many of the leaders, including, uh, you know, uh, the former president and other prominent members of the Justice and Development Party, or what became the Justice and Development Party later. At the time, there was still tension between them and the military with coups and everything. So whenever I came back, the United States and talked about my research about, you know, social change and the Islamist movement in Turkey, they told me that I'd much rather study the military rather than the, uh, the party, because obviously it was the military that was, you know, controlled and changed. <laughs> and I thought it, was, it would be unwise for me to study the military, because nobody, <laughs> nobody did. Uh, but what interested me then, uh, I said, well, why is it that the Turkish society in general is so so accepting of coups? I mean, it, because military coups are another form of violence. They are a political, uh, you know, they're basically uh, politically violent, uh, and uh, you know they undermine democracy. Yet, uh, uh, Turkish society has no problem welcoming them one after another. And I said, how could it be that violence? Uh, it has been normalized in, uh, in Turkish society so much. Why are we so accepting of what goes, what goes on? Um, and I said there must be a, an initial violence, a foundational violence that happened that we never accounted for, that became a part and parcel of what we were, what we have become. And because of that, I started looking back to see, you know, what is the foundational violence. And I had to obviously stop at 1915-1917 and the Armenian genocide. That's how I arrived at it. And of course, that also intersected very nicely with the lesson I had sort of learned from uh, the, the book I wrote uh, on the bourgeoisie. Uh, and I said, well, um, what happened and how did it impact uh, what you know happened later? Uh, and for me, uh, the issue was never... Uh, whether uh, this was a genocide or not, uh, it was evident to me by the research I did that it was indeed a uh, genocide, uh, not only for the destruction uh, carried out then, but also later on, uh, the destruction carried on through denial, which is considered, uh, you know, the last stage of genocide. And because of that, uh, I... Uh, was much more interested in why Turkish state and society deny what happened. Mm -hmm. To me, that was a much more interesting question because uh, it would hopefully make me understand uh, 
why it was so difficult uh, for Turkey uh, to transition into a truly democratic uh, society that is at peace uh, with its own uh, past. Uh, and that's how it all started. <laughs> that's a fascinating story. Yeah. And I have to confess, I suspect graduate students listening to this, have, you've struck fear into their heart now that they've learned that you actually published a book as a graduate student, <laughs> and that they're afraid they will have to do the same thing. There's a lot of, um, there, there's a way in which your your personal journey of exploration is intertwined with this book, and I want to hold off on that for a little bit, but yeah. but come back to it. So let's let's start talking about the the argument of the book now, and and you start out by laying out an approach to studying denial that understands it as a process with both structural and effective components. Um, can you talk about what you mean by that? Sure, sure. When I started uh, studying uh, this, uh, you know, very important instance of, of, of violence, you know, during uh, the genocide, either 1915 to 17 or uh, 1915 to 22, my uh, other question as a sociologist was, uh, what would be the starting point uh, of my study and what would be the end point? Mm -hmm. The starting point, I said, well, were there other instances of uh, violence against the Armenians pre pre prior to the genocide? And there were indeed. And, and that's why I kept going back and back. And, uh, you know, I ended up in 1789 because, uh, uh, not because of the, you know, uh, fortuitous year when the French Revolution occurred, but it was also the year in which Selim III, Sultan mm. Selim III, came to the throne in the Ottoman Empire and started systematic modernization of the empire. And modernity, like Sigmund Bauman and uh, Hannah Arendt and others have argued, I thought, really uh, polarized uh, relations in society, and that's why I thought uh, I would start in 1789, and then I said, well, has, has then the uh, violence against the Armenians abated after the genocide? And no, it hadn't. And I had to therefore bring it up to date, and I had to start in 2009 because it was a nice round number <laughs> up somewhere. Um, and that's how it came about. And when you look at it, uh, uh, usually... Uh, in terms of change, whenever change happens, there are very important structural factors, uh, you know, factors, as I said, introduced by modernity. But um, when you look at many societies, uh, not all instances of violence uh, turn into genocide. I mean, you know, they are usually contained uh, in, the, in the system in one way or another. And I said, well, what is it that sort of leads, uh, triggers, violence of, of this, because violence is sort of destroying or, or bringing harm onto others, uh, is a next step, step that one takes. Uh, it is a very dramatic step, and thankfully, in our history uh, of humankind, we don't have too many such steps. So for me, that's how the affective element or the emotions come into play. I think that... Uh, um, the sort of the polarized society, you know, people feeling sort of uneasy uh, towards one another. They could live like that forever, usually, but, you know, what triggers that step of, of, of violence? Uh, 
And uh, that is why I brought in the emotional, because uh, there is sort of collective emotions that uh, lead to that. For example, if you think about our own society here in the United States, you know, with Ferguson or with the with the murders or in North Carolina of the Muslims, I mean, uh, it's interesting uh, that um, the collective emotions that have emerged in both cases were those defending, uh, you know, uh, the victims and, you know, at least saying as a society, we are conscientious, we know what happened, we, do, we condemn it, and we don't want it to happen again. I mean, that is a very important message. If in its stead, uh, nobody had talked about it, uh, people mm. had justified what they were saying, I think what we would have seen uh, would have been an escalation of violence. And, you know, that demonstrates, I think, the significance of collective display of emotions in one way or another. And that is why um, I looked at, uh, at uh, uh, the interaction of uh, uh, structural factors uh, brought upon by modernity, economic, political, and the social, with emotional factors, uh, collective feelings, public opinion, and the things uh, you know, that that produced. And your main, or one of your main set of sources for this study are, are memoirs, a really quite astonishingly large number of them. How, how did you find all of these? <laughs> well, that's why the book took 12 years to write. <laughs> <laughs> because until then, uh, people uh, have always, uh, you know, scholars have, and to this day, used mostly uh, uh, official documents. And of course, official documents are important, but... Uh, Critical theory also uh, tells us, especially, you know, race theory, queer theory, and feminist theory that, you know, I have learned and teach, uh, they tell us that they too have obviously vested interest in them, uh, and they are the interests of the state. And especially since I wanted to uh, bring in the effect of the emotions, <laughs> there weren't going to be too many emotions in these, <laughs> in these official documents. And more importantly, you don't hear the people's voices, be they victims yeah. or perpetrators. And that's why I said, you know, what? how can I capture that? Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, memoir, I mean, there were a couple of things. I could have done uh, oral histories, but that wasn't very advisable, both because, of course, uh, not many people have survived. And, of course, if they have... Uh, um, Talking to them, you know, given that genocide is not accepted in Turkey, would have been quite challenging. Mm -hmm. Another factor, uh, source could have been uh, literature. I mean, you know, fiction is a very sure. important source that could be demonstrated, but uh, that could be employed to demonstrate violence. But there is not enough fiction systematically, especially including, uh, you know, the minority fiction in, in, in Turkey, enough for me to undertake that such a thing systematically. So I said, why not memoirs? I mean, and that's how I ended up. And uh, they had been published, um, you know, all throughout uh, Turkish Republican history. I looked at the ones after 1928. So I only looked at the ones written in Latin script, even though yeah. I do know Ottoman script, but I figured uh, these had to be all available to Turkish society in one form or another. And uh, it was important that society did not draw upon this and see the violence for themselves, but denied it instead. So 
I started reading all the memoirs I could get my hands on, um, both, you know, through the booksellers in Turkey, uh, the libraries here, uh, libraries all over the world, <laughs> and read probably uh, about uh, seven, eight hundred of them. Uh, of those, uh, I then... <laughs> Well, it, it was fun. I <laughs> what can I say? And I only chose uh, the ones that had some information on uh, violence, minorities, uh, you know, um, in one form or another. I then uh, took notes. Um, I, I was brought up bilingually, so I can use Turkish and English interchangeably. I mean, it's easy for me. So I took all my notes in English. Because I thought, it, I mean, I translated uh, all the Turkish memoirs mm -hmm. into English as I was taking the notes. Uh, and then I had about a thousand pages single space of notes. Uh, and once you have that, because uh, we have the computer now, it's, it's so easy. Yeah. Because if you only have one memoir, or if you have like typical five memoirs, they usually uh, can be very idiosyncratic and sort of take you in one direction or another. But if you end up having, you know, 300 plus memoirs, you do start seeing patterns and they do balance each other out. Uh, and it's like a jigsaw puzzle, literally, where you can put all the pieces together and you can even get life stories of people by computer searching. I mean, the key, key words and everything. Uh, so, uh, and it, I think, makes you sort of, you know, uh, more cognizant of the time and how people saw it. And it also gave me a sense of, you know, what were the turning points where, you know, in terms of the violence against the Armenians, uh, uh, at least the, the narrators had. And most of these narrators, about 80% of them, were perpetrators of one sort <laughs> or another. And that was also very unique um, because... Uh, such violence often uh, combined uh, with nationalism, ethnic nationalism. Uh, initially, they were not, uh, uh, some of them had no problem writing about it. Uh, others self-censored, but uh, uh, if you read it against the grain, uh, let go of it in certain ways, so that by bringing these all together, I could narrate and I argued, you know, there were stages basically four stages through which this whole denial process came to be. And just again, for those graduate students who might be listening and are now having a heart attack at the words 12 years and 700 memoirs, I do want to point out she said the words interesting and fun in that answer as well. <laughs> it's easier to do that after the book is done, I'm sure, than when it's happening. But it is. But I have to testify, I'm and interesting are, are words that come to my mind in research as well. You talked about four periods, and, and the first one you, you outline runs in the book from 1789 to 1907. But, but the violence that you study doesn't really begin in earnest until later in the period. So what happens during that period that, that creates this um, the emergence of violence? I think two things are, are very important. Uh, one... Uh, until then, uh, you know, before the emergence of, of this violence, in a, the millet system uh, that, uh, uh, in a way, protected the, the, the minorities in the Ottoman Empire was very important in that, you know, there was a lot of communal monitoring that went on, uh, you know, with these non-Muslim uh, communities. And also the Sultan 
sort of provided protection over the leader of the community, through the leader of the community to the entire community. And usually, uh, therefore, when there were instances of violence uh, against uh, the non-Muslims, uh, they were either, you know, brought to the attention of the, the, the Sultan and, you know, the state uh, by either the non-Muslim leaders or by the Muslims, you know, living in that uh, place. And they all work together uh, to contain it, to make sure that whoever engaged in that violence would be punished. So accountability becomes extremely important in the story. They were held accountable. Usually the elders would get together and then go and talk to the people, usually younger people who, of course, mm. were more prone to engage in violence, and they will tell them to chill and, you know, take it easy, and then you know, either work and somehow compensate those. Uh, what happens, of course, with modernity is that, the day, as Will Kimbichka talks about, the basis of uh, protection changes from mm -hmm. communal to individual. And once you do uh, provide uh, protection at the individual basis, the assumption that there is all the individuals are equal to one another. Well, that's extremely hard uh, to carry out, and uh, non-Muslims were never equal, uh, you know, because of all the rights and responsibilities they had in the empire. They were never equal to the Muslims. As a consequence, uh, it became much harder uh, to monitor this uh, at a one-on-one -on -one, uh, scale, and once the non-Muslims also started then... Uh, experiencing violence, uh, they were not protected in the same way. Not only were they not protected, the other people around also saw that uh, there was not uh, this protection and also there was not a punishment for the crime or the violence they committed. And that is the sort of change you start seeing uh, in the, towards the 1890s, especially after a series of reforms in uh, 1839, 56, 76, failed to protect uh, the non-Muslims at the same level as the Muslims. And the failure of those reforms uh, and the increasing, uh, you know, uh, um, defeat of the empire, especially with respect to the Russian wars fought against Russia in 56 and 78, 1856 and 78, have a lot to do with the first instance of, of violence in the first period. So, so how extensive was the violence against Armenians and other non-Muslims in, in the late 1800s, early 1900s? Well, the ones that uh, we do have, 1894, 96 or thereabouts, uh, um, they say anywhere from 100 to 300,000 uh, mm -hmm. uh, Armenians uh, were killed. And it's very interesting because uh, most of them uh, uh, the deaths actually occurred in eastern Anatolia, and that mm. was where, uh, uh, in 1850, you know, there was um, a, a private property law where that, you know, you you had to uh, title your land and get a, a deed for it, uh, title deed for it, and uh, um, that caused a lot of unrest because it was the same period where they were also trying to uh, uh, get Kurds to settle down. Uh, uh, and what happened, of course, is that they would, uh, they were nomads before, and they would settle down, but uh, often at the expense of the Armenians. And that is mm. why uh, there is uh, a lot of impoverishment of Armenians there, even though if you look at what's going on in 
western uh, parts of the empire, in the major cities, Armenians who trade with the West are becoming very uh, rich. Uh, mm. The interesting thing is, uh, the Sultan says it's okay for the Armenians become, to become rich insofar as they do not translate their economic wealth into political power, mm. so that they have to stay apolitical. That's why, uh, you know, the West of the uh, empire is filled with mostly, you know, uh, Istanbul, uh, they call us Bolis Armenians, you know, Armenians of the capital who are wealthy but who are apolitical compared to the east parts of the eastern parts of the empire where uh, they are more impoverished. And what's interesting is, of course, uh, more impoverished and because of that much more prone to become politicized. And that is, I think, also significant that. Uh, the divide within the Armenian community itself in that way also in a way uh, uh, made it difficult uh, for them to act as, as a community again uh, to uh, take a stand against the violence as well. And that is why uh, most of the violence started in the eastern provinces uh, against, uh, you know, uh, the tax collectors, uh, the Muslims, and what happened was that uh, Abdul Hamid was extremely worried about uh, Western foreign intervention in the affairs of the empire, and therefore uh, he sent uh, troops, he didn't send troops, he sent sort of, you know, uh, militia, I mean, mm. later, uh, than necessary by the time all the damage was done. So it was a way of, so to speak, you know, popular justice in quotes, you know, in a sense that people, uh, Muslims were aggravated, they thought Armenians were leaving the empire and then they stormed the Armenian neighborhoods and massacred people. Of course they could because Muslims had the, also the right to bear arms and uh, non-Muslims did not. And that meant that if you look at the, the figures, uh, you know, the Armenian deaths are usually anywhere from three to ten times the deaths of Muslims in, in these times of conflict. But what's very important is that this sort of happens all over, and it is not systematic. I mean, it is not systematic in the sense that uh, the intent doesn't seem to kill. The intent seems yeah. to be to punish uh, by the Sultan, and he punishes basically by sending things too late and then therefore letting, you know, popular justice take its, its course. But what's very important is at the end of these massacres, people who engage in all these murders were not held accountable for their murders. That yeah. is what's important and that sort of, I think, creates the ground for what happens later on. So then, then given that, how, how is this violence interpreted and remembered by the, the, the authors of the memoirs you look at and the people at the time? Well, that was the most fascinating thing, was that when I looked, uh, of course, it could be understandable that most of the Ottoman um, officials and officers and, you know, um, most of the people or intellectuals, people who wrote the memoirs, mostly lived at the capital. Because mm. they lived at the capital or at least, you know, um, they, uh, or at least, you know, they traveled to other parts but ended up there. Um, the, at the capital, people had no idea about what was going on in the provinces. Huh. I mean, they probably heard about it and read about it. But most importantly, I think, uh, it is the uh, 
uh, Ottoman bank, uh, yeah. uh, you know, uh, takeover. That is very important. Takeover by the Armenian revolutionaries. Uh, they took over the bank uh, uh, in 1896, uh, and they did so in order to draw attention to what was going on in on the East. And then, of course, here is uh, a sultan who has like absolute, you know, control over everything. And then suddenly, this group of, you know, uh, uh, revolutionaries pull this off, uh, take over the bank, and you know, um, that that took everybody by surprise because what happened was that, of course, there were uh, sort of uh, bombs that. Uh, exploded, they heard that, and then there were some revolutionaries who escaped uh, from the bank, and then they were all over uh, uh, the city with the, you know, soldiers after them. Uh, so uh, they, you see in a lot of memoirs, people realizing for the first time, oh my God, what was that explosion? Who huh. is, uh, you know, then some of them describe seeing a street fight between one of the revolutionaries and others, and, you know, then for the first time, uh, they are aware that there is an Armenian issue. And of course, uh, the first denial that sets in sort of is triggered by this event because uh, the Sultan doesn't give in, but says that uh, uh, they could, the revolutionaries uh, could leave the empire. Uh, so what happens is that they, they are accompanied by the, uh, by the director of the bank uh, who takes them to his yacht and the yacht then sails to France so that they too uh, uh, get, you know, away with what they've done without being punished. And in addition, the Sultan then uses this to see, to have the first denial. And the first denial is, uh, they, the Sultan says, see, it was always the Western forces, people outside of Europe who had instigated this uh, because uh, instigated this Armenian problem. Uh, and because of that, you know, when things didn't work out, they took their people, their puppets, Armenian puppets, back to Europe. Uh, so in a way, it was a very good way of totally denying the fact that the origins of the uh, violence or the Armenian issue were actually uh, the failure of the reforms in Turkey from 1839 to 76, failure to contain the violence. Uh, so it was a domestically, uh, you know, uh, produced problem. Uh, and so first denial was that it was instigated by the great powers and by powers outside of Turkey. And this is, of course, something that goes on in Turkey to this day, whenever something happens in Turkey, people seem to immediately find I want to blame outside the country, uh, which of course is a good way of, of projecting and turning attention away from internal strife. So that's what happens in the first stage. And, and then if, that, that leads us, of course, to the, 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 geno the period of the genocide, um, in which the Committee of Union and Progress is, is essentially in control of the government. And... Uh, we don't have a lot of time to go into a lot of depth and background. Could you briefly, for those listeners who aren't familiar with this, briefly kind of summarize um, what the Committee on Union and Progress wanted and how it how it moved to try and force a social structure of similarity on the empire? Yeah. Well, that is where you have uh, uh, 
the committee is called Union and Progress. These are uh, the first graduates of uh, the Western style schools, uh, Western style education that got started in the empire. And that education uh, was Western style because they were trying to catch up with what was going on in the West, of course. And through that education, they became, uh, of course, uh, uh, sort of open to ideas of, of, of liberty, of progress, of, of making the empire better. Uh, and as a consequence, the, the Sultan provided them with this education, hoping that their, royal, uh, their loyalty to the Sultan would increase. Instead, they became loyal to each other and decided that uh, uh, what was needed uh, definitely mm. was a constitution, an assembly, uh, and they were intent of basically replacing the Sultan rather than being loyal to him. And that is how they took these ideas of sort of Western modernity and tried to systematically apply it to the empire. Uh, so they rebelled against the Sultan, the Young Turks did, and then um, the Sultan had to give in and bring back the constitution, uh, which he had uh, sort of uh, put on uh, hold. Um, and once they came to power, they had no way, uh, the Anturks, mostly uh, of officials and officers, uh, had no way of controlling uh, uh, society. And they themselves started to resort to violence. Uh, the first against, uh, you know, uh, the opponents of the regime, uh, the journalists. So there were lots of assassinations of people who took a stand against them. And then uh, what happened, uh, of course, was uh, um, through a, a series of the Balkan Wars was a big disaster uh, where uh, the Ottoman Empire lost. Then came the First World War, and there was a huge defeat in the Russian front, and you could see systematically um, those young Turks in the party that had very radical views, and also at this time, increasingly nationalistic views of, of making at least sure that Sunni Muslim Turks would be in positions of power to sustain the empire. Um, they uh, decided uh, uh, that uh, Anatolia, uh, Asia Minor, was going to be their homeland, and all those, you know, who uh, Called the same place their ancestral lands had to be systematically eliminated. And the most important, of course, uh, indigenous people of the region were the Armenians. Uh, and, and that is when uh, the systematic destruction of uh, you know, the Armenians started all over the empire. Uh, it was systematic in terms of uh, you know, uh, uh, the Ottoman um, administration was concerned, but in application there were a lot of variations because, of course, not a lot of people went along uh, with it and who did not go along and opposed were usually uh, removed and replaced. And as a consequence, uh, you know, uh, they were forced out of uh, their houses, the places they had lived for, for centuries, sent on a death march and, uh, you know, uh, as a consequence of which, uh, according to the Ottoman official figures, 800,000 or unofficial ones, one and a half million uh, Armenians perished in the process. And what is interesting there is the denial that I'm interested in, that even though this is, of course, uh, destruction, uh, 
usually it happened outside of the cities, outside of other people's, uh, you know, uh, ability to watch and witness it. Uh, they said, no, these were just the uh, sort of adverse consequences of deportations, uh, you know, forceful sort of deportations away from areas uh, considered militarily sort of significant. Uh, so that was the second denial, was the denial of the act itself, uh, even though this was an act uh, intended for destruction. It was seen as a, as a sort of, you know, a non-destructive act. So then, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, <laughs> um, you said they. To what degree is this? Is the denial intentional and centralized, as opposed to decentralized and, and incidental or accidental? I think it is uh, both. Uh, it is mm -hmm. very interesting. Uh, of course, uh, young Turks would not have been able to carry this out if they did not have local people who went along with them. And if you do look, uh, young, Turk, uh, when they were, young Turks, as we say in uh, Turkish Union and Progress, they established uh, clubs all over the empire uh, locally. Uh, and these were always almost exclusively headed by uh, uh, Muslim Muslims and Muslim Turks. Mm -hmm. um, so these... Uh, they were called responsible clerks in all these local areas were very important in working together with either the governor or, you know, the sub-governor uh, in uh, carrying these out. So there was definitely local, uh, you know, um, uh, collaboration. In addition, there were, of course, others, uh, other local notables who were more than happy to, you know, take over and plunder the wealth and property of people who were going and being destroyed. So, I mean, I don't know if you call that accident, but <laughs> I mean, you know, they, they put uh, their interests before uh, their ethics, uh, or at least most of them do, did. Of, we know of instances where people refused to have anything to do with it. Uh, so it was a very mixed picture, but there is no doubt that there was collaboration uh, on the most part at the, at the uh, local level in, in what was going on. Otherwise, it could not have been carried to the degree, to this degree. Although there was also resistance, and we have to probably recognize the resistance because those were the righteous. And, you know, those at least will give us a hope for going to the future for reconciliation, to recognize those people. Excuse me. What happens to the perpetrators in the in the immediate post-war period, and, and how does that shape the the sh or, or, or shape the emergence of denial in the post-war period? What happens basically is that uh, the leading uh, triumvirate, uh, Jamal uh, Pasha, Talat Pasha, and Enver Pasha, and some of the sort of major ones uh, escape uh, to Germany, uh, so they are tried in absentia. Uh, for the violence they perpetrated. So they are gone. Uh, the rest of them, uh, though, stay, uh, of course, in, in the empire. Uh, some of them, because the British uh, especially uh, are uh, intent of, on, in bringing them to justice, uh, a lot of them uh, uh, try, you know, to escape. Those who cannot escape uh, are imprisoned. But because there is so much nationalistic fervor about the imprisonment, 
the British then uh, exiled them to the island of Malta. So they are at least uh, for a year or two out of action. What happens that is that those uh, who are left in, uh, in the country basically organize uh, first into sort of defense units against uh, the British occupation in the aftermath of the war. Uh, a British and French occupation, an Italian, but British is the main one. And then what uh, these uh, then uh, turn into, you know, defense units uh, are headed by Mustafa Kemal Atatürk, uh, who himself was not involved in, in, in these uh, massacres. Uh, then um, the perpetrators are left with a choice. They can either join Atatürk in this independence war, they have no idea where it's leading, or they can, you know, go and face British, you know, <laughs> justice, whatever that may bring, and you know, it doesn't look good because they've had, you know, one or two people. So a lot of them throw their lots in with uh, the independence movement and join the independence movement. And uh, of course, uh, Mustafa Kemal at the time is needs uh, skilled uh, people who could help him fight the war. And the perpetrators are all officials and officers who are skilled, who have you know skills that could that he could benefit from. And once the war succeeds, uh, the former perpetrators then become the heroes of the republic, and it becomes extremely difficult to punish them after that. So not only are there uh, you know perpetrate you know violence uh, they committed forgiven, but they are actually then. Uh, their past is whitewashed and they start leading, you know, becoming very important figures in the, uh, in the Turkish Republic, you know, prime ministers, ministers and the like. And by doing that, of course, you let the violence, the unaccounted violence that these had, people had perpetrated, you know, diffuse into the Turkish Republican time, continuing the violence not to the same degree against the non-Muslims, not to the same degree as before, but now uh, mostly in the form of pogroms, you know, and plunder of their wealth, which is what I focus on uh, in the third period. I cannot hear you. The really interesting parts of the book mm -hmm. is that many of the studies about Armenia about the genocide end in 1917 or 1919 or whatever. And, and you pursue this to, to talk about how there's, there's maybe not a culture of violence, but a continuation of violence against non-Turkish minorities during the Republic. Why does that happen? Well, partially uh, because uh, I think it's a number of factors. One, as I said, uh, the people, uh, the perpetrators, uh, are now in positions of uh, decision-making and power. Uh, and because they have benefited themselves from uh, the violence that they had committed against uh, the minorities, the pattern of then uh, aggressing upon minorities continues. Uh, and of course, uh, there are some uh, very few minorities left uh, in the Republic. These are mostly concentrated in the cities. Uh, they are mostly uh, in the now the western parts because the eastern parts are pretty much decimated, and there they still control. Uh, they have wealth, some wealth uh, somehow, because these are the apolitical ones. And rather than you know trying to figure out how to uh, uh, 
um, put up with, especially the adversities of Second World War. Even though Turkey does not enter the Second World War, it nevertheless has to mobilize and it becomes increasingly difficult uh, in wartime conditions uh, to, uh, uh, to come up with some money, you know, with funds. Uh, uh, and of course, uh, it should be noted that most of these officials and officers have never uh, uh, have not been business people. They have not. They do not know how to make money. They usually know how to manage. Uh, in the case of the officials, or spend money. In the case of the officers, so they say they're looking, you know, where to find money, and they decide to tax unfairly the non-Muslims to a degree that a lot of them cannot pay the taxes and and perish in labor battalions. And then they they decide to all, you know, right before that. Uh, um, take them uh, into the military and make them, you know, uh, serve there. Uh, uh, and after that, you have this tax put in, and then they literally take a lot of money away from them. Uh, and and when this doesn't uh, work out, then they use the occasion of uh, the problems Turkey is having with Cyprus to again, uh, you know, to sort of get the West to pay attention and sort of frighten uh, others. Uh, they go after and plunder the wealth of non-Muslim minorities in 1955, what we call as the 6-7 September events. So what's happening there is, is uh, in the Turkish Republic, not everybody is protected equally by the law. Uh, and those uh, who are not seen as, you know, proper Turkish citizens over time, this happens. Uh, basically, those who are not Sunni Muslim uh, Turks, are the ones who increasingly face violence. And that is, you know, why uh, the Armenians uh, face violence, mostly through legal means, you know. The intent is to, like, get rid of them one way or the other, through attrition, you know, through hey, confiscating their property. And they do manage, uh, you know, because uh, they were about 20% of the population in the you know, 1890s, and then it's now 0.02%, if that now. Uh, so that demonstrates that it was systematic, using institutions, uh, uh, you know, military, in the military people have these horrid stories of, you know, what happens if you're a Muslim because you have to serve in the military, uh, you know. So uh, in any possible way, what happens, of course, is most of the uh, generations then don't want their children to stay there. I mean, and you know, the children migrate. So that's how... It uh, sort of continues. Then we hit the last uh, stage. Mm -hmm. and yeah, and, and you say, you suggest that this last stage of denial in the later Republic years are triggered by a series of assassinations of Turkish officials. Can, can you talk about that and explain how that leads the Turkish state to develop an official discourse of denial? And I hear I'm stealing your words, but that's probably okay. No, that's fine, yes, that's well, in the 1970s, uh, I mean, there is a lot of unrest throughout the world. And as a part of this sort of unrest, uh, terrorism, you know, that especially is sort of, you know, is advocated around, the, around, around of course, the Palestinian cause and other causes, uh, third world causes, so to speak, also leads uh, some Armenians, uh, younger uh, Armenians, uh, to uh, decide to engage in violence and terror as a way to once again uh, draw attention uh, to uh, what happened uh, 
in the genocide because the problem is, of course, with past violence, if you do not acknowledge it uh, and deny it, as the Turkish state and society did and do at that point, uh, it keeps, it, the wounds never heal. And, and then, therefore, they're always with you. I mean, like a nightmare that never goes away. So in order to uh, call attention, uh, they decide uh, to uh, uh, assassinate Turkish diplomats who are serving mostly in Europe uh, or uh, in the United States. Um, and uh, the assassination starts. Uh, at the time, uh, uh, the Turkish state has no idea what's happening and why it's happening. They think it's either the, the West, you know, it's either the Soviet Union or, or the United States or someone behind them, uh, then they eventually realize that it's the justice commandos of the Armenian genocide or the Armenian uh, um, uh, secret army for the liberation of uh, Armenia. Uh, so Asala or JCOAG, as we say. So these terrorists take a total of, you know, I think 30, 40 diplomats. Uh, and uh, during this time, uh, the Turkish state, which had considered this uh, completed down issue, it's, you know, mm -hmm. are suddenly uh, put, uh, have to understand and explain to, to their populace and also to the rest of the world what's happening. They look and they do not have any, uh, uh, any literature on it uh, in English. They just have one little brochure when the first uh, uh, assassination occurs in 1974. So they say, they say, okay, they invite, uh, according to Cameron Gürin's, uh, you know, and uh, uh, Turkish uh, officials' uh, memoirs, they invite the scholars to Ankara and they say to all these professors, they say, well, this is what you should be doing. You should start looking to our history and demonstrate how terrible the Armenians have been all through. And Cameron Gürin says, not only did these scholars at all listen to what we had to say, they had the alacrity to tell us what to do and how to do it instead. Because, of course, a lot of them probably said that's not how you do research and, you know, mm -hmm. research. So basically, they, they don't do anything and they go back to their universities. Uh, uh, and Cameron Gurin is desperate. Who should he, you know, recruit for his cause? Uh, he recruits uh, retired diplomats, uh, you know, who are officials, and he sends them all. I mean, they are also, of course, you no know, Ottoman Turkish, so it's easy because they're of a, a generation that moved from the Republic uh, to the, I mean, from the Empire to the Republic. Um, so they go in and they start systematically going through whatever material there is with the intent to demonstrate, uh, you know, how the Armenians were violent and, you know, uh, all along. Uh, and uh, therefore, they come up with a, a rhetorical account of what is now the official history, where they deny, basically, at that point, uh, uh, that uh, they deny any responsibility what, for what happened, saying that Armenians also killed uh, Turks, uh, that these massacres were, were mutual, and you know, and, and you know, that, that is how the rhetoric uh, comes about. Is sort of brought up mostly by these uh, um, retired diplomats. But, uh, of course, recently, in the last, ever since the end of the Cold War uh, and the reorganization of the world order, there is now, for the first time in Turkey, a public uh, you know, sphere where these things have started to be discussed. So in the last 
since 1990s, probably in the last 10 to uh, 15 years, there has been a dramatic difference uh, in, in the denial in the sense that there was one uh, survey done and now 9% of Turks think that there was a genocide. So mm-hmm. 9% is minimal, but it is better than, I guess, 0%. And I'm sure generationally, with each generation, it will go up, especially since people are now much more cognizant of the violence that the Turkish state keeps perpetrating against all groups, uh, I think, because of this tradition of violence. Well, your, your conclusion to the book yeah. is, is unusual for an academic work. And, and in it, you talk about the purpose of writing the book, that the book is really aimed at the perpetrators of violence and denial. What, what do you hope to accomplish with that? Well, you see, this is why it was so uh, contentious all along. Uh, mm. When I was, uh, because I initially did not want to use the word genocide, uh, yeah. because not because of what happened was not genocide, it was. But I said uh, Turkish state and society, especially Turkish society, has no clue about what happened in their own past. They do not know their own history. And you can't ask people to accept the violence they know nothing about, uh, you know, if you don't educate them first or at least tell about it to them first. And that's why I said usually I will call it a genocide when the Turkish state society become aware of what happened and call it a genocide with me. So that was like my sort of public intellectual, I guess, role in a certain way. Uh, That is why I uh, wanted, uh, because I myself was brought up in Turkey, uh, got the best education I did. I had no clue about uh, the genocide myself. We have, because our history textbooks are so whitewashed, in it, the Turks are always virtuous and innocent, and everybody else is naughty and, you know, uh, uh, you know they are the ones uh, committing the violence, and, and they're always portrayed in a negative way. Uh, if I didn't know the history, and nobody else does either, uh, I thought they should first know what was going on. And then, you know, and once I wrote the book, then I figured, hopefully now it's being translated into Turkish too, they will see it, read it, and then that's why I didn't even want to have a conclusion. And then I had to, you know, go back and forth with my editor. They said, look, (laughs) I said, no, I want to write the conclusion when actually genocide is acknowledged in Turkey. They said, no, 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 you can't do that. At least I'm putting the conclusion what it is that you want. Mm -hmm. That's why it's a very short conclusion uh, just to say, you know, this is an ongoing saga. So, so it's a it's a pretty new book, and you I, I, I you just mentioned that it's been translated. How's how's it been received? Well, interestingly enough, uh, uh, it came out uh, in in November, and uh, I was in Turkey, uh, and huh. it came right as the the Turkish History Foundation Tarih Bakko is having uh, this whole year. Uh, um, I think about fifteen talks. Uh, on the Armenian genocide, uh, and they said to me, well, would you like to be the first one to start off the series? I said, sure, why not? I mean, you know, that meant I gave the first talk after the book came out in Turkey, in Turkish. So I actually had the book, I showed it to them, because huh. only one copy, that was the only copy. <laughs> it wasn't out in print yet. Uh, and there were about 120 people, I gave it. They also had it on a podcast on their site. 
uh-huh. in Turkey. Uh, everybody listened. They all were fine with it. Uh, you know, they asked intelligent, important questions about it the way you did. So it was, at least in that audio medium, very positively received. Mm-hmm. Of course, I also have no problems with it when I give it, you know, in the United States. Uh, in Europe sometimes, but uh, there are occasionally there are people from the embassy who come to sort of play the devil's advocate and, mm. you know, tell me that I'm ignorant and don't talk <laughs> talking about it. <laughs> but uh, aside from that, it has been so far well received, but I think it will probably take another six months, uh, you know, to a year yeah. for people to go through because it's a big book too. Mm-hmm. It's 644 pages and, um, you know, We'll see how it is. I hope that it will uh, contribute to the world uh, being a better place. It's uh, dedicated uh, to uh, my children and Hrant Dink's uh, grandchildren, because Hrant Dink was a a friend uh, whose loss, I think, has uh, traumatized our generation of intellectuals in Turkey. And I say that hopefully they will live in a world that is more peaceful and respectful of people than ours has been. You mentioned that you you didn't know anything about this growing up. What what has it been like for you to research and write this book? Well, uh, I have made a lot of new friends and I have lost a lot of old friends. Uh, <laughs> so it has been trial by fire, uh, huh. uh, which was interesting because this was a question I asked, uh, you know, and I thought this was the way... Uh, a way for uh, Turkey to come to terms with its past and become a more democratic, accepting uh, society. Uh, And uh, I asked the question about uh, foundational violence, and obviously it was the wrong question to ask, because a lot of people took issue with me, and a lot of people were very upset that I would put academic interests, whatever they would be, before state interests. And Mm -hmm. I would get emails saying, what kind of a Turk are you? You know, shame on you. What are you doing? I mean, you know, you can't do this to your own people. I mean, so obviously some thought I was being a traitor in Turkey. Likewise, though, I mean, here as I was giving the talks initially, Armenians too were like very upset uh, because uh, they, they for a very long time thought that I was an agent of the Turkish state somehow, mm. tend to like, you know, pull things apart here and, you know, and they also thought that uh, a Turk uh, couldn't be as civilized as I was, so obviously I must be an Armenian. So it was, you realize that the radicals on both sides were exactly that. I mean, mm. Turks said my blood must be tainted, obviously, and therefore uh, I was saying the insane things I was saying against the Turk state. Uh, the Armenians said, yes, my blood must be civilized, you know, by some Armenian blood, because I wouldn't be the Turk saying the civilized things I was saying uh, if I, it wasn't so. So I left that aside and, you know, moved on. And, uh, you know, I had a chance to at least uh, surround myself and draw strength from people who are like me, who think like me. And, you know, mm-hmm. with, especially at the University of Michigan um, and also through Watts, workshop on, on Armenian-Turkish. Uh, um, um, uh, we have a scholarship. I mean, we have yeah. scholarship. I mean, a, a workshop series that continues for a long time. Through those, I was able to, you know, uh, and with our students, uh, who now we make sure they know both Turkish and Armenian, Ottoman and Armenian when they're doing work, 
uh, I think we are trying to create a new generation, a new body of knowledge, uh, you know, where all parties uh, bring in what they have and are respected uh, to the same degree. So we'll see where it goes and what will I be doing next? People ask, now I want to learn Kurdish and study the Kurds because <laughs> after the Armenians, the Muslim violence gets applied to the Kurds. And that is, of course, another problem we have in Turkey today, much to the distress of my family because they said, you know, <laughs> we thought you'd, you know, choose something safer. <laughs> they say, do the gardens, the parks, you know, something positive. Why do the Kurds? And I say, well, this is what sociologists do. We go after, uh, you know, problems. Well, we've taken a lot of your time. I'd just like to ask you one more question. Uh, and it's a, a question I ask everybody. And I'd like to give you a chance for, for the listeners in our audience who are interested in going further. What's what's one book or one movie or, or what would you recommend they go read to learn more? Well, uh there's so much uh, that has been written most recently. I mean, in the, ten, uh, the last uh, 10 years, uh, of course, we've always had uh, works by Armenian scholars like Richard Tovanesen and others. Now there are, of course, uh, other Turkish scholars, Panarak Cham, Orimit Inger, and uh, Lana Ekmecholi is just coming out with a book. Uh, we have others who are also uh, uh, coming out. and. Probably the one I read the most most recently is my colleague here, uh, Ronald yeah. Rigorsuni, is also putting out a book. Uh, I think it's already out, uh, called the Armenian Genocide, and it is uh, it really does summarize the whole thing, and you know, in a way um, that is very deep and thoughtful. So that probably uh, would be the one that would really give people a, a picture of the the entire. Uh, Hey. Well, as I said to you in the as we were chatting before the interview, it's it's a, it's a wonderful book, and I hope the listeners will go and get it and, and read it and think about the arguments you make, um, and that you'll come back with us on the show after you're done studying the Kurds, assuming your family <laughs> doesn't disown you. Um, Maybe in another but, ten years. <laughs> well, there. <laughs> We're still here. More fear in the hearts of graduate students. But thank you so much for being on the show, and um, and hopefully we'll talk to you again sometime. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. You've been listening to an interview with Fatma Muge Gucek about her book, Denial of Violence, Ottoman Past, Turkish Present, and Collective Violence Against the Armenians, 1789-2009. to If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes, or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. I hope you'll come back next time when I'll talk with Jürgen Matthias about the book War, Pacification, and Mass Murder, 1939, the Einsatzgruppen in Poland. Until then, thanks for the download, and have a great month.